Welcome to Menlo Church Online. We're excited to have you tuning in and joining us today. We are a church where we believe that everybody's welcome, nobody is perfect, and anything really is possible. Enjoy today's message. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are values that have been ingrained in us since we were children, especially the last one, happiness. Uh, We all long for happiness. Uh, Whether we're rich or we're poor, we're Democrat or Republican, uh, dog owners, uh, even believe it or not, I think cat owners want to find happiness. Uh, Although I'm not sure cats themselves care about being happy. Uh, How does our culture pursue happiness? And how does this differ for our pursuit as followers of Jesus? This is what this whole series is about as we examine the book of Philippians. And today we're going to look at chapter 3 of Philippians. And so let's jump in together. I want to start by asking a question. What is the goal of following Jesus? What is the goal of the Christian life? This is an important question because every pursuit needs a goal. Goals help us with our approach. They change our mindset. They change our process. So what is it? Is the goal of the Christian life to follow a set of uh, ethics and morals? Is the goal to become a part of a community or a tribe? Is it to uh, get the right set of beliefs or theology? Is the goal to maybe do good in the world? Or maybe the goal is to get to heaven? What is the goal? That's the question we want to wrestle with uh, today. Uh, That's the question we want to wrestle with. And it's such a vital question for us because uh, if we don't know our goal, uh, we're at risk, we're at danger of pursuing the wrong thing. Now, this morning in our room, I'm curious, how many of you, by raising hands, would say that you are a runner? Uh, Yeah, how many? Yeah, raise your hand if you say, I am a runner. Man, I respect you guys so much. Uh, But I want to let you know that I am not one of you, uh, not in the least. But 10 years ago, for a variety of reasons, this non-runner signed up to run a marathon. It was a crazy idea, but my goal was to finish a marathon. The goal was not to dominate it or crush it. Uh, The goal was definitely not to enjoy it. The goal was to finish it. And so the day of the race came, and I'd been given the advice over and over again to start slow. Let everyone else start fast, and they can burn out. But you start slow. Don't let the motions get the best of you. Uh, This was great advice. I uh, had every intention of following it until the gun went off. And I was overtaken with adrenaline and emotion, and I took off like a sprinter. And the first few miles just felt so good and so natural. Other people on the side of the road that were cheering, they're saying things like, you got this, you're amazing. And I was like, you know, yeah, I sort of am. That's right. I I felt like the chariots of fire guy. Like I could feel God's pleasure as I ran. And then mile five hit and Chicago started getting really hot. And so I transformed back into a non-runner. 
And mile 13 came around, and I started cramping, like everything was cramping. And then mile 15 came, and my feet were bleeding through my socks. Uh, There's nothing I wanted to do more than to quit. I wanted to quit so bad, but I just kept repeating this phrase in my mind, finish the race. That's the goal, just finish. You don't have to go fast, just finish. So I started slowing down. I started focusing on just one step at a time. Uh, And then I started noticing the people that were once cheering on the side of the road were now more like consoling. Uh, There's no, you got this, champ. It was more like, you're going to be okay. Uh, It's all going to be over soon. Uh, I just kept repeating my mind, finish the race, finish. Uh, Two miles left to go in the race. I didn't think I could do it. And at that time, my wife jumped onto the street, and she joined my side, and she helped me. She gave me the boost of support and energy that I needed, and we crossed the finish line together, and they put this medal on my neck. And as soon as they put it there, I immediately collapsed, and I burst into tears. Uh, I'd finished the race. I had accomplished the goal. And then I'm, thank you, wow, my goodness. It was like 10 years ago, but okay. Uh, immediately after that, set a new goal, uh, never to run again in my life. <laughs> Goals give us clarity. They give us focus. They help us remember why we're doing what we're doing. And they help us press on through challenges and obstacles. And that's why I wonder if we are clear on what our goal is. Because in theory, a follower of Jesus should have more purpose and meaning than someone who doesn't follow Jesus. They should be less stressed, less anxious. They should be more peaceful, joyful, patient, and kind. But is this the reality? Maybe we are pursuing the wrong goal. Maybe we are pursuing the same goals as everyone else. We have to get this clarity. This conversation is so vital because if we are pursuing the wrong goal, we are at risk of living an unfulfilled uh, life without purpose. We're at risk of giving in to obstacles and challenges. So we have to get clear on this. So let's get into chapter 3 of Philippians where the Apostle Paul talks to us about this pursuit of goals and the pursuit of happiness. And he says this in verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Make a note on that phrase. We're going to come back to that. For whose sake I have lost all things, and he says, I consider them garbage. So quick backstory, Paul has accomplished a lot of things. He's achieved high status. He's done impressive work, and he now says uh, that these gains are worthless. They're meaningless. They're garbage. The Greek word for garbage here is skubalon. Uh, it's a fun word to say. Uh, let's all say that aloud together. Skubalon, that's right. Uh, skubalon means garbage. It can also mean dung. Uh, It can also mean what is thrown to the dogs. 
uh, like scraps or leftovers that are thrown to the dogs, which doesn't translate super well for us in California because we give our dogs pristine, organic, grass-fed uh, meat. Uh, we take our dogs to the grocery store. We just let them pick what they want. <laughs> like Paul, many of us uh, spend our lives pursuing scubalon, uh, things that are meaningless and worthless. One of my favorite authors and writers, Henry Noun, gives this brilliant illustration about our pursuit of these things. I'm going to call this illustration the pursuit of scubalon. So this line represents our lives. We all have a beginning and we all have an end. And this is life. It is short. And in this short time on life, uh, in life, most of us pursue value and meaning in three different areas. Now, the first area is we strive for meaning by what I do. This is one of the first questions we ask somebody when we meet them. What do you do? It could be a job or a hobby or a side hustle. In the church world, it could be a volunteer role or a service project. Especially in the Bay Area, we are always striving to do more, to accomplish uh, more. The second area is we strive for meaning by what I have in what I have. This could be a home, a vacation spot. It could be our investments or our savings, but it could also be a relationship, a spouse, a child, a girlfriend or boyfriend, your cat. Uh, it could be your looks or your physical health, what I have. And then finally, we strive for meaning uh, by what people say about me, what people say. This is our status. This is the perception that others have of us. This is, uh, do they like me or not? Uh, fame, esteem, am I highly regarded? So most of us spend our time pursuing these three areas. This is the pursuit of happiness in a nutshell. And here's what happens. When I do something great, when I achieve something worthwhile or I get a promotion at work or I do something that leaves a positive impact in somebody, I feel good, I feel satisfied. But when I fail, when I drop the ball, I make a mistake, when I lose my job, I feel dissatisfied, I feel unhappy. Or I strive uh, for things. And when I buy a new house or a Tesla or I get a new relationship or maybe all that time at the gym, I finally get a six-pack, I feel satisfied, feel happy. But when these things get old, worn out, I get tired of them. Uh, or when that six-pack fades into a keg, uh, <laughs> get dissatisfied, incomplete. Or uh, I strive for status. When people hold me in high regard or I achieve a lot compared to others or I uh, get a little fame or followers or likes on social media, I feel worthy, I feel seen. But then when people uh, achieve more than I do, more success, or I'm disliked, people disagree with my decisions or my actions, I feel unworthy, unseen. And so our entire lives become a roller coaster of ups and downs as we pursue happiness, but never find lasting fulfillment. And Paul says this, all of this is scubalon. It's garbage. 
It's dung. We don't have to be extremely observant to see this to be true in our culture. The, those of us who pursue scubalon, we leave feeling worn out, unfulfilled. But if we're not careful, these things, this becomes our goal. This is what we aim at in life. Now back to Philippians where Paul talks to us about the real goal. What is the real goal for us? So he says this, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's the goal. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the goal to know Christ. That's the answer. You've got the answer. You can actually leave if you want. We're good now. <laughs> Earlier he uses the phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Another uh, part of the New Testament says, this is eternal life, to know Christ. Uh, the Greek word for know here is ginosko. And ginosko is a verb that indicates the most intimate knowledge of another. Because, of course, we know there are two kinds of knowledge. There's head knowledge, there's factual knowledge, and then there is intimate knowledge. And it's important to make that distinction because Gnosko, Paul, is talking to us about intimate knowledge. Uh, and so we want to make that distinction. I want to give you an example to help with that distinction. I want to show you a picture of my family. Uh, these people uh, mean the world to me. I love them so much. Imagine if you wanted to know them better, and so you asked me to tell, uh, tell you a little bit about them. And imagine if I responded in this way. You know, Lori, she's my wife. She's great. She's five foot four. Um, her blood type is O positive, and she was born in Ohio. Uh, my daughter, she's the best. You love her. Uh, she weighs 40 pounds, and her bedtime is 8 p.m., <laughs> My son, he wears uh, black shoes, and he has sandy blonde hair. And my baby, so cute, he has two teeth, and his head circumference is 44 centimeters, <laughs> which is weird that I know that. Uh, if I responded in that way, you'd probably say, remind me to never hang out with the Hendrix family, like ever. <laughs> Guy's weird. Uh, question. What do you call somebody who studies and watches another person and collects facts about them from a distance? A stalker. That's right. <laughs> Follow-up question. Are you stalking Jesus? That's going to be the title of my first book. It's going to quit stalking Jesus. You're creeping him out. <laughs> Christianity can easily become a religion that is focused on facts and head knowledge, studying Jesus from a distance, knowing the right answers, knowing the correct theology from a distance. But, of course, there's a different kind of knowledge. And this kind of knowing is harder to describe because uh, it's deep. It's personal. I could try to describe my family in this way. 
I could try to tell you uh, about my wife and how she has a silly, goofy side that not a lot of people get to see. And when she's in one of those moods, it reminds me to not take life so seriously. It uh, soothes my soul. I could tell you about the times I come home and I feel defeated or lost, and she has a way of speaking directly to my soul and giving me support and encouragement. I could tell you that her jumping in at the end of a marathon is a metaphor for her sacrificial love for our family. I could try to describe how it feels when my daughter and I hold each other's hands and we belt out the song, Let It Go, from Frozen. Or what happened to my heart a couple of weeks ago when she randomly looked up, looked up at me and said, thank you for being my daddy. I could try to paint a picture of the bond I feel with my son when we play baseball and we talk about the Cubs, which is something I did countless times with my own dad. Or the times when I, I put him down for the night and he looks me in the eyes and he says, we're best buddies, right? Right. I could try to explain the intimacy that I feel with my newest baby boy when I feed him a bottle and he looks directly into my eyes deep and he plays with my beard and the intimacy and the connection we feel. See, I could try to describe that kind of knowing I have of my family, uh, but it's nearly impossible because that kind of knowing doesn't happen here. It happens here. Do you know Christ in this way? Or do you just know facts about him? Do you know him in the way that Stephen in the New Testament knew him? because you don't willingly get stoned to death because of something you read in a book? Do you know him in the way that the disciples knew him, who gave their lives, went across the world to help others know him? Do you know him in the way that Mother Teresa knew him? Because you don't move across the, country, the world and serve the poorest of poor because of facts. Do you know him in the way that William Wilberforce or Martin Luther King Jr. knew him and his love for justice and equality? Do you know him? Not just here, but here. Because this is the goal, to know Christ deeply and intimately. That is the goal. So Paul continues in Philippians as he talks about this goal. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, I've already, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Press on, goal, prize, win. Now, this is all language that makes us think of sports and games. Uh, the business and leadership author Simon Sinek wrote a book last year called The Infinite Game. In the book, the premise is that there are two kinds of games. Uh, there are finite games and there are infinite games. A finite game is a game that has a set of rules and a playing field uh, with boundaries. These are the kind of games we're most accustomed to, like basketball or Quidditch or Monopoly, uh, which Monopoly is not a great example because it's sort of infinite too, if you know what I'm saying. With these kind of games, finite games, there's a winner and there's a loser. Uh, an example, 2016, 
Uh, the Chicago Cubs played the game of baseball, and they won the championship. Therefore, they are eternal winners. A year later, the Houston Astros played the same game of baseball and won the championship, but now we know that they didn't play by the rules. So therefore, they are eternal losers. <laughs> I had to say that. Um, another way to say this is a finite game is based on results. Did you win? Did you lose? Did you get the prize? But then there's, there's another kind of game, an infinite game. An infinite, infinite game is nonstop ongoing, continuous. It's not based on winning or losing or even being the best. Uh, it's based on growing, improving, progressing. Another way to say this is an infinite game is based on the process. Finite game based on the results. Infinite game is based on the process. All of my favorite hobbies are based on process. One of these is woodworking. Uh, this is a lamp that I built. And the results are not amazing. It's a little lopsided. It's a little crooked. Uh, but I don't do woodworking because of the results. I love the process of it. No real wood woodworker has ever made a piece of furniture and said, I did it. I can hang up my tools. I made the perfect piece of furniture. I'm done. I won. That's because woodworking is an endless craft of improving and progressing. Uh, it's not based on the results based on the process. Many of us were taught a brand of Christianity that is based on the results. I did it. I said a prayer, and now I'm a Christian. I won, and now I get my prize. I get to go to heaven. But Jesus, he didn't talk about a result. He talked about, uh, he offered a journey, a path, a way, a process. See, for us, our goal doesn't end here when we die. Our goal is an infinite process of intimate knowledge. Uh, we don't, we're not on a pursuit of happiness that ends when we die. We are on an infinite process of knowing our God more deeply and intimately and becoming one with him. So for some of you guys this morning, you need to hear this encouragement. Press on. Press on. You feel like your results have been bad, that you have failed, that you have lost, or you made a mistake. That's not the kind of game we're playing. We're on an infinite process and journey, so press on. Maybe you're in a moment of brokenness and desperation. Press on. You're just on mile 13. You got a long ways to go. But remember, you don't run by yourself. Someone runs with you side by side. So slow down. Take it step by step. Press on to the goal. The goal is an infinite process of knowing Christ deeper and deeper. Now, at this point, uh, many of you may have questions. I can think of two questions that I would have if I were in your, your shoes. The first question would be, uh, well, what about loving and serving others, spreading the gospel or bringing justice to the world? Aren't those our goals too? The beautiful reality of keeping our goal simply to know Jesus is as we get to know him more intimately, his character becomes our character. He transforms us into his likeness. 
So yes, all of these things are important and they matter and we care about them. But we allow Jesus to transform our hearts. We connect to him like a branch to a vine. And we allow him to bear fruit within us. Now another question uh, that you may have is, how do I know an invisible being? That's a great question. If you guys have another hour, we could really get into this. The process is actually really similar to knowing another person intimately. How did this happen with my wife? Uh, It happened through intentional times with each other. Uh, Taking walks together, asking questions and listening, putting dates on the calendar to be alone with each other. It's the same with Christ. Uh, We spend intentional time with him, silence and solitude, taking walks without our phone and conversing with him. There are many many spiritual disciplines and practices that we can use to know Christ more intimately. Uh, But this morning, we're going to practice one of these together. Uh, We're going to practice meditating on the character of Christ together. Now, quick note before we do this, Keith Riley, who's going to be leading this meditation, is a lifelong Houston Astros fan. Uh, But we're not going to hold that against him, okay? (laughs) Uh, So right now, I want to encourage you uh, to sit back in the presence of God and let's join in this practice together. Now we're going to enter into a time of reflection and meditation uh, where we just become open to God's presence and love with us. So I'd invite you just to, with your positioning of your body, just to enter into that. Maybe have your hands and palms raised and openness to receive from God. Maybe you feel comfortable with your eyes closed or maybe looking up. And just pause for a minute and reflect on the fact that God's love is near you and with you. We're gonna start this time by hearing a passage read it's familiar to you. It's, it's the story of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples as the storm comes. And as I read, there's going to be an image by Rembrandt of this very scene depicted. And I'd invite you just to either listen to the words or reflect up at the image and just hear the story and God speaking to you through it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they put out, and while they were sailing, he fell asleep. A windstorm swept down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water. And they were in danger, and they went to him and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were afraid and amazed and said to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. So as you look at this image, maybe just ask God, which face are you up there? Are you one of the panicked faces trying to fix the situation yourself? 
Are you maybe rushing to Jesus and to God and saying, I'm in the midst of this storm, where are you? Why aren't you helping? If you maybe see there's even one who is seasick and has their head just hanging over the side and maybe you're just sick. You're just sick of what's going on. You're sick of the storms. Just pause for a moment and ask God, where are you in this image, in this story? And now think of the face of Jesus. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of our panic, there's Jesus, calm, unhurried, at peace. I wonder what's the one word you would use to describe Jesus? Think about that for a second. If you had one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? Dallas Willard, in his answer to that question, said, relax, relax. Think about all of the times we see Jesus throughout the Gospels, here in the boat, with people pressing in on him at all sides, asking for healing and for teaching and guidance. Always in his response, Jesus is relaxed, unhurried, never pressing forward from that moment, never thinking about what's coming next, but being present. Jesus modeled for us how to live an unhurried life on God's time. He showed us what it meant to truly live in the reality that we are perfectly safe within the kingdom of God. So think upon your own life. What's causing you to feel hurried? What's causing you to feel rushed? Maybe ask God, what do I need to eliminate from my life? Where do I need to see where I'm hurrying too much and just need your peace and presence? Now as we come to a close at this time, just invite you to say this prayer. Lord Jesus, give me your peace. Give me your presence. Remind me that you are near in the calm and in the storms. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We hope that you feel inspired and challenged by today's message and that you can take it and apply it to your everyday life. If you wanna keep following along with Menlo Church, feel free to join us on social media where you can find out what's happening. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next week.